Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shots. I am Matt Risby. Hello. And uh, joining me as always uh, via the miracle of satellite technology, it's the last airbender. It's Air David. Ed, <laughs> God damn it. Air Davis. <laughs> That's my uh, sneaker range. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Good. I'm feeling vindicated today because I went to see the Rocky movie Creed or the uh, Rocky spin-off. Sadly, not Rocky Seven: Adrian's Revenge, as the Simpsons promised us. But mm. I don't know if you remember this, but when we recorded our episode of War Machine vs. War Horse back in June or July, whenever that was, that was the film I pointed to as the film I was most excited about that wasn't Star Wars. And uh, it lived up to all my expectations. So I, I'm pleased with the thing I thought five months ago. Well, well done, you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's took me that long to realise that it's it, it's a genuine thing and it's not terrible, and that people mm. are responding to it in a in a in a way that isn't kind of like if you've told me that two years ago, I'd have thought that was the worst idea of all time. Yeah, especially because of the hoops you have to jump over or jump through to or over over is even harder. But uh, mm. yeah, not if they're laying down. Yeah, well, yeah. In in my head, they're being held up by someone in a leotard. <laughs> that's that's neither here nor there mm. um yeah like if the, the amount of hoops you have to jump through in order to justify the fact that oh yeah apollo creed had a son that no one knew about and he grows, grows up to be a boxer and oh now he's being trained by rocky but ryan coogler and michael b jordan and sylvester stallone all did a fantastic job with it my one misgiving with the whole thing is it is the latest example in this weird trend that we're starting to get of films that are both sequels and pseudo remakes of older films we kind of had that with jurassic world earlier this year to very mixed results and it was announced this week that we're going to get gremlins 3 which will essentially do the same trick and creed is like a legitimately really really good film possibly even a great film and it may even be an oscar contender which again is something that i don't think anyone was expecting two years ago but i'm i'd be worried about it perpetuating the idea that there is a way of circumventing people's misgivings about remakes by just saying it's just a sequel to a film that you really love Mm. um, where's it going to end are we going to have Drago the story of uh, Dolph Lundgren's uh, son who also takes up a career in boxing who probably has his kind of uh, feelings towards western excess and capitalism softened by the speech that Rocky does in the end of Rocky 4 where for those of you who don't remember he kind of just ends the Cold War with a, with a rousing kind of uh, speech in the ring after defe- defeating Ivan Drago. I mean, that's how it. That's how history happens, and you can't deny mm. Sylvester Stallone his great, important role in in ending that decades long conflict. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people talking about Rocky and 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 essentially boil them down to training montages, which you know some of those films are extended training montages, but the one in Rocky Four. Is is might be one of my favourite bits of cinema of all time, where it's the most heavy-handed bit of kind of editing to kind of make a, a a point that like you know Drago is kind of pumped full of steroids and has got like all this team of kind of like egghead boffins using all these machines to train him up, and then there's Rocky like just pulling a plough through the snow, running up a hill <laughs> and hitting a tree. Really, it's just fulfilling what Eisenstein's dream was for the, the art of editing. If you could get like a time machine and take Rocky Four back to show him, it probably just wouldn't bother. 
He'd probably be like, oh no, it's a I, huge mistake. I think his one note would be like, well, can you have Rocky running down the steps as the camera moves up it? Because I think that's that's a really dynamic shot. And a pram could follow him down. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We've gone highbrow, guys. It's a Battleship Potemkin reference. Or it is the Untouchables. I'm not sure which. I believe it's Naked Gun 33 and a third. That makes makes perfect sense. Uh, let's talk about some news. In news that surprised me, and maybe everyone, apart from Vin Diesel, for some reason, there's a new Riddick film and also TV spin-off show in the works. Who is... Who's, who is... Who's, who wants this? I don't. Do you know anyone <laughs> who wants it? Well, I think the last Riddick film had some fans, but it was very much a case of him kind of cobbling together a very low-budget follow-up to a massively overblown space opera and exceeding very, very low, modest expectations, which is not the sort of thing that you would build a franchise upon. But then again, the seventh Fast and the Furious film just made over a billion dollars worldwide. Mm. So... Vin Diesel does have prior form in in that area. Yeah. I mean, if you watch Pitch Black, you think, well, okay, this is kind of fun. There's Keith David's in it. That's that's good. But do I want to see a world built around this character? Especially when you think the only really genuinely excellent instalment to the whole Riddick franchise was Escape from Butcher's Bay, the, the video game. amazing video game that was made to promote the terrible <laughs> Chronicle <laughs> of Riddick feature film. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to see... The Chronicles of Reddick, all entirely based around Lance Reddick, the guy <laughs> from The Wire. I'd watch the living shit out of watching kind of Lieutenant Daniels on his <laughs> on his off day. Or it's an anthology series, and every episode is built around a different anonymous cop that he has played in, like episodes of The West Wing and stuff like that. Or the Chronicles of Reddick, Chronicles of Reddick, Chronicles of Neil Ruddock, former England. <laughs> And Liverpool <laughs> centre half. I mean, again, I'd watch it, but I feel like we've strayed off the point. Speaking of TV shows, segue, been off of film, but this one we are duty bound to talk about. Tremors is for some reason getting a TV show, which is kind of mystifying, but also we can kind of tentatively approve that. Especially because it has the involvement of Kevin Bacon, who is returning to the franchise for. The first time since his the first film? He wasn't in any of the sequels, was he? No, he wasn't, no. I think Michael Gross is in all of them. Um, Including the one where he plays his own granddad. <laughs> yeah, and the one that was in South, shot in South Africa last year. Um, <laughs> oh, each friend of the show, Martin Parsons, went to, for a set visit. I don't know how he managed to wrangle that, the lucky boy. But yeah, I'm not really sure how that's going to work as a TV show. But, you know, Kevin Bacon... Needs to work. I mean, over here, he's kind of now ubiquitous with kind of mobile phone commercials. He was using cop car this year, wasn't he? That was a big thing, I guess. But maybe he's got a bit of free time. Yeah, he has very much settled into his his later period as just a guy who just shows up in everything, oh. regardless of quality. Hey, what's that shit TV show he was in? Follow, oh, um, following? The following? Yeah, the following, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, an awful Kevin Williamson show. God damn you. Which aired alongside the equally terrible Kevin Williamson show Stalker, which was cancelled after, I think, a season when everyone realised it was really horrifying watching women being brutally killed every week. Well, this is Kevin Williams I've been talking about here. Um, well, someone yeah. needs to tell a studio executive somewhere it's not 1996 and stop giving in, him money. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Tremors TV show, I think 
the main reason I can think as to why it's happening now is because Ash versus Evil Dead has been a a something of a hit. Mm. You know, it's doing pretty well in the way ratings and the critical response to it has been very very positive. People just are really excited to see that character back in all of these uh, continuingly continuing and incredibly gory adventures. And although I like you say that the the premise of Tremors doesn't really lend itself to a tv series because unless the whole world is just being overwhelmed by those worms <laughs> it seems very hard to imagine a situation where they're just constantly being menaced by them but like if it's f- a fun and enjoyable slightly cheesy b-movie romp then it's the sort of thing that i'd perfect be perfectly happy to watch you know once a week mm, yeah or over a weekend on netflix mm, yeah we'll see how that one pans out Fantastic Four, the second stab at doing it in the last kind of 10, 15 years, died on its arse this year. Mm-hmm. And someone this week, very quietly, but no less brutally, put the thing to rest and has cancelled the kind of the mooted sequel, uh, which had a release date and everything. Mercy killing, Ed, or knee-jerk reaction? I think it was the only logical outcome, because there was some talk, like you say, there, there was there people at Fox were saying... Oh no, you know, we're still going to th- go through this. We we really want to do something more with this cast and with these characters and the film to give a sense of just how much of a failure the Josh Trank version of Fantastic Four was. It earned about 56 million dollars over the course of its entire run in the US, which is terrible for a film that cost like 200 million dollars or whatever it was. But in comparison, the first Fantastic Four movie that was made in 2004 opened to $55 million. And not adjusted for inflation either. So it didn't even sell as many tickets over its entire (laughs) run as the first or the second Fantastic Fours, the Tim Story films that weren't particularly popular or well-liked, managed in their opening weekends. Mm. So it was to say it was unsuccessful is something of an understatement and... I think, given the bad word surrounding the entire production of the first film, it would have been very strange to see them try and make a second one. And, you know, going knowing that it would be operating under a cloud and it probably would have been just better to wipe the slate clean and either sell the rights back to Marvel so that they can do something with it or just reboot it in another five or six years. Mm, yeah. And The Force Awakens has made more money than that. It's not even out yet. Oh yeah, which is <laughs> <laughs> kind of there's a damning, damning uh, verdict that a film that doesn't come out for another three weeks has already surpassed it in ticket sales. The idea of Star Wars is more profitable <laughs> than the reality of Fantastic Four. Yeah. Essentially, the trailer of Star Wars has outgrossed Fantastic Four, <laughs> which is yeah. There you go. It's a scathing indictment right there. The Independent Spirit Award nominees came out this week. Ed, who is amongst the runners and runners and riders? Currently, the big names are things like Beast of No Nation, Carol, which I believe is the one that got the most uh, nominations, the Todd Haynes film with the surprisingly bland name. And mm-hmm. I still think it sounds like a, a movie about a dinner lady. Yeah, do you think it's a diptych between that and Joy? Yeah, well, yeah, I think so. But I found out yesterday that the Carol, the book that it's based on, is called The Price of Salt. Yes. Uh, also, yeah, I think Carol is like another name that it's been released at at various points, but it was originally released under a pseudonym mm. as uh, The Price of Salt. Oh, okay, cool. Carol, I think, is the one to beat because obviously Todd Haynes hasn't made a feature film since 2007. And uh, the only thing he's done in that time is 
Mildred Pierce, uh, which was you know a great miniseries, but I'm not uh, eligible for Oscars and whatnot, and an episode of Enlightened, which again, really good, but technically not eligible for Oscars. And you know, so he, it, his it's a big return for him, and everyone's very excited about that. But also things like Anna which I may be saying completely wrong, the uh, new Charlie Kaufman film, which has been getting a lot of buzz and which I'm annoyed that I probably won't get to see for a while because it sounds incredible. And Tangerine, which has been kind of a very big cause celeb recently over here in the US. And Magnolia and the Duplass brothers who produced it have been pushing very, very hard for it to get awards consideration for you know all the major things. And that's potentially very exciting because it's a film that's uh, revolutionary in a number of ways mm, mm. it's very early for for kind of nominees to be announced given that when did you say the ceremony was like near february yeah it usually happens the day before the oscars so that's wow. the it not only are they announcing their awards before basically everyone before even any of the critics awards but they're set in stone it's not like you know when the new york film critics awards will announce their nominations maybe a week before the ceremony or the Online Film Critics Society, the uh, organisation of which I am a proud member. I was basically a three-months lead of them saying, yeah, these are the great films of the year. Everyone else can suck it. Mm, maybe they really want to make sure that people come. So they're like, <laughs> if you can just RSVP, I know it's a long way away, but just get it in your diary now and don't worry about it. And it's lamb, chicken, or there's probably a fish dish on the menu somewhere, but, you know. Let's not be picky. Around about that time of the of the year, Kate Blanchett's calendar is just full of awards dinners and stuff. So you really want to try and lock her down for it. Yeah, absolutely. We've had a big trailer drop this week, haven't we, Ed? We've got the Captain America Civil War trailer, which is very easily confused with just another Avengers movie because pretty much every single motherfucking Avenger is in it. Yeah, it definitely feels like Avengers 2.5. As opposed to the uh, Winter Soldier, which had a couple of Avengers in it, but mainly it was just uh, Captain America and uh, and uh, Black Widow. I almost said Scarlet Witch, but she wasn't introduced at that point. Um, but yeah, it's it very much feels like a continuation of that world. The conflict is clearly spilling over from Age of Ultron when uh, Iron Man and Captain America were angrily splitting logs next to each other. And this is just very much building out from that. And it looks very exciting in terms of the, the put, pitching these characters against each other. I very much liked the fight that's shown at the end when Bucky and Cap are beating the shit out of Iron Man and they're swapping shields and stuff, mainly because of the way it's framed it looks an awful lot like the final scene in the, the final fight in the raid redemption, but mm. with fewer broken uh, light bulbs. Well, let's not perhaps jump to conclusions there won't be any broken light bulbs because, you know, there's every chance that that might happen. It's chock-a-block full of new people as well. Black Panther's in there, I believe. Mm -hmm. I think we got a very brief glimpse of Crossbones as well. Ant-Man was in there. You just He's just really small, so you probably mm -hmm. didn't see him. Who else is in there? Who, who or Who's not in there? I mean, Hulk's not in there. Uh, Thor, no, although, I didn't see him in there. Although Thunderbolt Ross is back, played by Will oh, Hurt, yeah, yeah. who hasn't been in the franchise for seven years and as much as it would have completely messed with their chronology and have made no sense i'm really it's i think it's a shame that they had to go with the william hurt version instead of the sam elliott version because he mm. was uh my preferred version of uh, thunderbolt ross mm, he's my preferred version of everything apart from ron <laughs> swanson because yeah he's definitely 
a kind of worse Ron Swanson. So that is out next year, and the hype train has begun chugging into town. We're talking this week uh, about Pixar. The main reason that we're doing that is because we've been well, we've been saving this up for a long time. We were going to do it around Inside Out earlier this year, but then we thought, well, hey, let's just wait for the good dinosaur to come out because it's rare that we have two Pixar films in a year. It's probably not a good thing that we had two Pixar films in a year. It wasn't perhaps in their plans for it to happen that way. But it's also 20 years since since Toy Story, which has kind of flown by, hasn't it, Ed? Yeah, especially when you look at the sheer number of films they've put out in that time. They've put out 16 feature films in that time, which mm. is a very impressive rate for a a studio that is as massive as they are. Most, uh, obviously, things like Warner Brothers and Universal put out multiple films a year, but Pixar, who are you know one of the leading animation studios have not exactly rushed themselves when it comes to putting out product. Mm, yeah, yeah, and these things do take a lot of time. They famously started Toy Story in 1967, <laughs> um, and it just took ages. It originally started as a software program to help Stanley Kubrick fake the moon landing, I believe. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what Pixar... If Pixar's an anagram of fake moon landing. That's why one of the main characters is a, uh, an astronaut. It's all there, sheeple. Just just look it up. Yeah, Read a book. <laughs> yeah, crack a book, guys. But yeah, The Good Dinosaur, we both saw it this week. What did we think to it? Uh, I liked it while also thinking that it was one of the strangest fucking films I've seen in a while. Mm. It was very disjointed, and it had some very weird shifts in tone. I joked that one of the, the two things I was not expecting it from it was that it would be a Western which it basically is, mm-hmm. or that it would feature a scene in which a feral Harry Styles rips the head off of a beetle. Yeah. Both of which are entirely true about the nature of the film, or that there would be a scene in which a T-Rex voiced by Sam Elliott says the words, I drowned the croc in my own blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is a very unusual film, and I have to say that especially in the UK, the kind of advertising campaign, the promotion has been very muted it has not been anywhere near as kind of like widespread and kind of all reaching as the inside out campaign where you couldn't move for it being on TV. You couldn't move for it being on billboards and on buses. The good dinosaur has kind of just kind of slipped into cinemas. And I mean, I went to see it today and it was a kind of kid friendly time and the cinema wasn't even a quarter full. It's kind of very unusual. I'm not saying the film's not going to do very well. It's, it's already kind of uh, had a decent opening. But yeah, it's kind of very strange that it's kind of flipped in there. But it's it was entirely sold on the concept of what would happen if the meteor missed Earth, dinosaurs went extinct, and humans kind of coexisted alongside. What it wasn't sold as was that does happen. But then dinosaurs work on farms now, and they eat sweet corn for some reason, and they live in houses that I don't understand what's going on. And I was really thrown. The film is so slow and sluggish to get out of the traps and establish a tone and a feel. It feels like a kind of drama about Dust Bowl farmers in the 30s, <laughs> but with dinosaurs. And I didn't really get it. And then I kind of... then I mean, to say this, there's going to be a spoiler here, but it really picks up when the dad dies and the kid and the dinosaur go off on their adventure. And I kind of thought, well, I almost kind of wish the film had just started with this. I found it, it, you're right that it was sluggish, but it had this weird combination of both be, feeling really sluggish and really rushed. Mm. Because 
like you you have the 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 birth of Arlo, the good dinosaur, the title, and his two siblings, and them kind of establishing in a succession of very quick scenes that he's sort of the runt of the litter. He's a bit of a coward. He doesn't have the intellect of his sister or the kind of brute force of his brother, and he's trying to you know find some way to kind of make it literally make his mark but because uh all of the members of the family when they achieve something they put their their uh hoofs i don't know what what you would call a uh a, a dinosaur's foot a foot this, <laughs> yeah let's go with that a foot <laughs> into some mud and then they make a hand slash paw slash hoof print on the a footprint on the side of a grain silo this is a film about dinosaurs i repeat it has a grain silo <laughs> and you know and, and he is and you know it's establishing all the stuff and all this succession of very quick scenes but then the dad uh, dies not not exactly unexpectedly because you can kind of see that that's the way the story is going but then the progression of things from there is dad dies there is maybe 30 seconds of the of arlo mourning him and then suddenly the adventure kicks in mm. and I'm not saying that in this film about a talking dinosaur that they should spend like 10 minutes watching him just be sad that his dad's dead. But a little bit more than that probably would have made the shift into him being kind of swept away and uh, lost on his own adventure. It could have gone a little, felt a little more natural and, and gone down a bit more easily. Mm, and it, it kind of uh, reaps what it sows later because when there is some kind of emotional payoff it doesn't ring true because it wasn't really earned. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the relationship with the dad, I feel, is a little shallowly worked over, worked out compared to, like, the obvious analogue would be Mufasa and Simba in The Lion King, where that's a relationship that is actually developed pretty well, even though Mufasa's not in the film all that much. Uh, and so his death and the impact it has makes a lot more sense, whereas obviously you know that Arlo's sad because his dad died and he was sort of responsible for it. But it still feels that there, there, there is, like you say, there's no payoff to that. But there is quite a nice payoff to uh, his relationship with Spot, the young primitive cave boy that he becomes friends with after uh, initial antagonism. Mm. And there, that is where the kind of the moments of Pixar beauty and magic lie in their relationship and, and their kind of bonding and the little moments, the kind of the bit that stood out for me is where Arlo is kind of tossing spot through the clouds mm-hmm. um, is a, is a really lovely little moment, but they are kind of, it takes so long to kind of get to that when you can, and it's, it seems so inevitable. It's just the, the true joy is kind of just seeing how they do it rather than going along with the characters and, and kind of feeling alongside it. I have to say the other, the other thing that I thought was amazing is the most the environments are the most beautiful I've ever seen in an animated film, and there were you could kind of pick any any bit from the film and pause it, and I would believe you that that was real. Yeah, the water effects in particular mm-hmm. were basically photorealistic. The, all of the environments are completely photorealistic, which I think adds to the sense of of weirdness of it all that you have these very very cartoony dinosaurs wandering through them. Yeah, it's no coincidence that closing titles are over just kind of like panoramic shots of of the environments they've created. Pixar really kind of wanted to 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 show those off, but really, it's they kind of upstaged their characters in a lot of scenes. It it had the feel of because what a, what a lot of time Pixar will do is that they will use films as uh, opportunities to test out new technology. Mm-hmm. And they often will do that in short films. They'll use it as a way of 
kind of working out the different physics engines in something that's a little shorter and is capable of being more experimental. And this felt like one of those short films stretched out to feature length. Um, and that meant that I felt the story didn't feel as kind of rich and compelling as some of their other films. And it did feel like a tech demo that characters had happened to walk into. And at times it was really like, I think it was a, in general, a really, really sweet movie and a very uh, well-meaning movie that kind of didn't completely work, but at certain points was worked like fantastically. Uh, In particular, um, the scene where Spot and Arlo are kind of, it's late at night and Arlo's talking about how much he misses his family. And they do this, uh, lovely thing with stick figures to kind of represent their families and drawing a circle round, And it's just a very nice bit of uh, visual storytelling, but it is bookended by a scene in which they are menaced by a paranoid, a seemingly paranoid triceratops who had, Ed, I don't want to, I don't want to correct you, but that's a Styracosaurus. Okay. A seemingly paranoid Styracosaurus who has all of these animals on him, which do things like keep him from having unrealistic goals. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, as he says and he has a, a red bird named debbie which is very kind of funny and strange and weird and uh is then followed by a scene in which spot feels really awkward while pissing yeah and, like i think that kind of inconsistency from scene to scene is the thing that that makes it feel uh kind of lesser compared to most pixar films because all pixar films have different tones and the, the the great ones you know they are able to balance those ones such as Toy Story 2 having lots of kind of very broad comedy about toys going around a toy store and there's a Jurassic Park joke and there's all these Star Wars references. But then there's also Jesse's song, which is maybe the saddest song ever recorded for for a film. Mm. But it balances those well. Yeah. And yeah, The Good Dinosaur doesn't perhaps kind of pull it off as, as well as all the other films. And we kind of talked about the fact they've made 16 films in 20 years, which is a pretty decent output. But the thing that kind of is staggering is the incredibly high quality of all the films. The Good Dinosaur is not one of their best, but it is certainly no turd. No, and they have maintained a pretty, uh, a pretty solid consistency throughout where they've only made one legitimately awful film and even their lesser films that aren't that awful film which i'm sure we'll get to in a second Mm. they are they are often merely quite good which is not something that many studios can kind of say yeah that awful film we're talking about is cars 2 Mm -hmm. which uh, i saw yesterday and i will get to but talking we're gonna i'm gonna kind of use rotten tomatoes I found a little bit of uh, kind of evidence. It's all of Pixar's films ranked by Rotten Tomatoes. Now, we've said before on this podcast, we don't really kind of hold much truck with Rotten Tomatoes. But I think this proves kind of a very interesting point. So they've released 16 films. The 15th lowest ranked film, or 15th highest ranked film, is Cars 1. And it's 74%. There are only five Pixar films below 90%. So Cars is the 15th best Pixar film, according to Rotten Tomatoes, with a rating of 74%. Cars 2 has a rating of 39%. Yeah, that one, to say it fell off the cliff is <laughs> oh, is yeah. an understatement. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you should never write, kind of put too much value in Rotten Tomatoes, but when there's a drop of, in quality of 35%, that's probably not great. No, and 
I think what's interesting about Cars 2 is it's probably the only one of theirs that feels like a naked cash grab. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously they've done sequels before. They did a prequel to Monsters, Inc., which I think um, I've described in the past as like one of the more pleasant films that does not need to exist. Because mm-hmm. um, Monsters University is a, perfect, is, is a pleasant film, and I think it has a lot of interesting things to say in there about basically about saying that sometimes uh, that not all dreams are meant to be fulfilled uh which is a very uh interesting and harsh lesson to put in a an animated film for families <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's not it, it doesn't feel like they're really kind of just making something because the mar- the merchandising would be very lucrative whereas cars 2 literally is just that because mm-hmm. the first cars was not a gangbusters uh, box office hit compared to some of their other films made just a unbelievably huge amount of money from merchandising. I think uh, I remember reading a, st- a statistic which said that it made two hundred and fifty million in the US, and but that represented maybe a percentage of the amount of money that, like, literally a single percentage point of the amount of money that it made for Disney in other areas. Wow! So they had to release a second Cars film because they needed more characters to turn into toys. Mm. And and cars. The, the thing, the, the the very baffling thing about Cars Two, is that like, it's clearly a story for humans, mm-hmm. where they have replaced all the characters that would have been played by humans with cars. Mm-hmm. So cars do things like walk on tight ropes and climb up the side of ships, and live in houses that have doors and door handles. That... <laughs> That cars could not possibly open. They go to bars and they drink cocktails that are served in glasses that cars could not possibly drink. They speak on public telephones that do not have handsets that why and and they exist in phone boxes. Why would a car go into a box to use a phone? And I mean, I know this is a film about talking cars, but that's just fucking ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think of why it was that the Cars films are so eerie and weird in comparison to a lot of other Pixar films. And I've, The analogy I always think of, it would be like if Toy Story existed and it was exactly the same as it is, except that there were no humans in it ever. Mm. It was still a world that was human-sized <laughs> and where the toys you know, still existed in Andy's room, but Andy and his mum and ev and sid none of them existed at all and it was just this weird neutron bombed world where all human life has just been completely wiped out and that's kind of the sense you get from cars where all of the houses are still they are basically houses from our world they just happen to be occupied by cars Mm. and that's what makes it really weird it takes the what if premise which is often that's basically what all pixar films are based on is kind of a what if scenario but puts it in the uh, logic of that what-if scenario are, is really kind of weird and baffling. Mm. It's strange that, like, I'm going to use Cars as a defence now. So the first Cars is kind of just all set in kind of mythic American kind of Route 66 type place and the mountain ranges are, are kind of shaped like kind of Chevy tail fins and kind of all this stuff. And it, that's quite nice. But then in Cars 2, they travel the world and they go to, like, Tokyo. And it's not like that. It's actual Tokyo with <laughs> with multi-story skyscrapers. Why would a car go into a skyscraper? <laughs> Why would a car use a toilet? It's fucking absurd. Um, and like, you know, where's cars? It uses the fact this is a world filled only with cars to build a world. And what that would look like, not 
place cars in the human world and just have them... What, do they go up the stairs? How do they use the fire exits? And again, this is a film about talking cars, but I feel like this is laziness on Pixar's part. The first one feels very much like a passion project for John Lasseter. It's something he talks about. You know, he talks about representing his own personal feelings about the kind of car culture that he knew when he was growing up. And like you say, that mythic uh, Route 66 kind of thing and this weird small town Americana that doesn't really exist and maybe never didn't, but it's it's kind of a nice idea and a nice setting in which to place a film. Whereas the other one does feel like they were mandated to make a sequel. They came up with this bullshit plot, uh, they this bullshit spy plot featuring Mater, one of the most grating characters mm-hmm. in animated history, and they just kind of grafted it. They grafted the other characters onto it, and it does feel like a lazy cash grab in a way that none of the even the kind of lesser Pixar uh, uh, series and films never ever feel like that. Yeah, um, and you to kind of get off the the negative vibe, it is. Pixar's only real stinker, and the the mark of quality is very high to the the degree that my wife asked me on kind of exiting the cinema earlier, could I pick my top five Pixar films? And I listed five, and then I went to ten, and then realised I'd left up out of the top ten, and then it was absolutely mortified. And I was like, how? I mean, that's just that's just kind of sterling work, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's the sort of thing that is very hard to do, like. I put together my top 10 when uh, Up came out because I think Up was their 10th feature. Mm. And I was like, yep, that's good. And then I haven't been able to even countenance revisiting a top 10 because I would have to leave stuff out. And uh, and obviously there are things like Monsters University and A Bug's Life, which aren't great, but I would still feel really bad about leaving them off the list because they still have a lot to offer that you're basically no other animated studio currently working with the possible exception of dreamworks on a good day mm-hmm. they're, they're great mix of emo- genuine emotional resonance visual splendor and smart comedy yeah and they do those things so well and like you said earlier they kind of are able in most cases to kind of meld them together to the point that you know something like toy story 3 is very funny very warm it's a rollicking adventure but in two instances it will not fail to absolutely destroy a grown adult <laughs> yeah or the uh, or up which starts with maybe the saddest opening <laughs> 15 minutes of any animated film ever mm. and then ends with uh, dogs flying planes <laughs> and, yeah uh it's kind of like the reverse grave of the fireflies <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it is it's it should be like if I describe those, the start point and the end point, that should not work as a film, but it actually does because they're able to bridge those two very disparate moments in a way that feels kind of very natural and ultimately very moving. And also, it's worth pointing that as much as the opening of Up is devastating, the end, or not the end, but the moment when uh, Carl looks through Ellie's adventure book is equally as kind of tear-jerking. So it's, mm. it's not like they go from tears to just happy and kind of goofy. It's very much kind of... Uh, they puncture all of the, the silliness with a moment of kind of wrenching emotionality. Yeah, it feels a little bit like the guy who was pitching it was really struggling when people started to kind of look fidgety. 
It was like, right, okay, this guy, he's got like this one true love and she's his sole companion and they kind of grow up together. They, uh, you know, get married, they grow old and then she dies of like cancer and then, oh, guys, uh, shit, it ends with dogs flying cars and like <laughs> flying planes and shooting down a hot air balloon. And then they're like, cool, let's do that. Just maybe not focus on the beginning and just get them, uh, get them on the adventure quicker. Yeah, and if you could throw him a really daft looking bird, that would, that would really help things out. Mm, absolutely. We've talked a lot on this show about the so-called Disney Renaissance, the kind of the point at which uh, Disney Animation Studios was uh, on its ass and uh, was going to close. And then they made The Little Mermaid and then what followed were a good 10 years, nine or 10 years of really, really great uh, animated films. Now, is it a coincidence that Toy Story dropped in 1995 and the Disney Renaissance started to tail off a few years later, and as Pixar went from strength to strength, and to kind of conclude that, is it also a coincidence that when Pixar started to kind of fumble the ball, Walt Disney Animated Studios, kind of five or six years ago, started to really pick it up and run with it? I don't think it's a coincidence in either case, because certainly in the latter case, there is a direct causal link in that when Disney purchased Pixar in 2006 after uh, kicking Michael Eisner out because he was on the verge of completely destroying one of their most lucrative partnerships. John Lasseter basically took over the creative direction of Disney Animated Studios and has had a very strong hand in guiding them since then. And you can see in how he retooled Meet the Robinsons to make that a film that wasn't great, but had a lot of interesting ideas and seemed to be moving in the right direction. And then you obviously you go through your, your Tangleds, your Frozens, your... Big Hero Six is, you know, you get all of those sort of stuff. Um, it's obviously stuff that's happened under his his uh, his tenure in that position. And in terms of the Disney Renaissance and it petering out, just as Pixar were getting going, I think what you see there is is less direct. But Pixar demonstrating that you could make a feature film entirely computer animated and having just wild unbridled success with it, creating these hugely critically acclaimed films that also earned just huge amounts of money and often outgrossed whatever Disney put out that year, maybe put an air of uncertainty into Disney's production because they had been they'd had a monopoly during those ten years of of basically being the only animated studio in town where anyone who even tried to compete with them just got destroyed, like when DreamWorks would try and do something like Prince of Egypt and it just wouldn't work at all or Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron a film that takes where the dialogue is almost entirely in horse mm. um, somehow didn't catch on with audiences or even something like the iron giant, which was a, a, like an amazing film that just didn't, didn't pick up with audiences. Basically Disney were the only game in town for a very long time. And I feel like Pixar, even though they were working for Disney kind of represented a um, antagonist for them, or at least for the hand-drawn style and, that maybe made Disney executives think about how can we do our own computer animated films and maybe didn't put as much uh, stock in what the hand-drawn people were doing and the, the quality fell off as a result. Mm. And it it does go off a cliff, uh, to use your phrase from earlier. I watched Chicken Little uh, earlier this week, which, as regular listeners will know, kind of my quest to watch all of the Walt Disney animated uh, classics is, is kind of drawing to a close I'm, I'm down to I think I need to do the last 10 I think Chicken Little is by far the worst it is absolutely fucking terrible 
it, it's really, really awful. It takes a very simple premise and uh, DreamWorks it to a intolerable degree. Mm. Uh, I think that's it, one of the things as as well that you see is that Disney couldn't really, when they started doing their computer animated films, they couldn't really ape what Pixar were doing because then they'd be just stealing from their own kind of stable mates or their, uh, un, un, their uneasy allies as it was at the time before they were purchased. And so they basically just tried to ape what um, what DreamWorks were doing, which was films that looked pretty okay, weren't amazing in terms of the animation, but were loaded with terrible jokes and pop culture references. Mm, that people will forget about in five minutes, as soon as kind of, uh, they're brushing the popcorn off the seats, the film is out of the memory, whereas uh, the Walt Disney, the idea is to kind of uh, make films that people, will, kids will watch, grow up watching, and then, you know, love forever and show to their kids, which uh, Chicken Little doesn't really embody that ideal, plus Zach Braff, so get fucked, uh, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, we've kind of just touched on it there, kind of looking at it today, researching it a little bit. The relationship between Disney and Pixar, when uh, Disney initially just had the distribution deal with them, I knew it was uneasy. I didn't realise just how kind of borderline toxic it was. Yeah, because... Part of their deal, their their initial deal was just for th- was for three computer animated films, and Disney would distribute it. But they would also own the rights to the characters and sequels, which is where the uh, disagreement they had over the fate of Toy Story two came from. Disney wanted Toy Story two to be a direct to DVD sequel. Pixar said that that would that they basically said no, that will you know destroy the good work that we had done if you start putting out substandard shit based on our characters, um, which obviously is ironic now considering Cars 2 and Planes. But, mm. um, you know, at, at the time, they were not willing to let something like that happen. So they, they they forced them to give over control of Toy Story 2 back to them, uh, which led to a, a massive headache because then they said, okay, this needs to be included as part of our free picture deal. And Disney said that wasn't going to happen. And they renegotiated a few times. But when it came to 2004, 2005, Pixar wanted a more equitable situation uh disney and specifically michael eisner who was the head of disney at the time didn't want to give them any kind of greater uh rights they didn't want to give them more profits which i think was one of the main things because they had a 50 50 split even though pixar basically did all the work and disney just released them and then obviously got all the sequel rights and everything so it, it there was a point where it looked like pixar and disney would completely part ways and uh you get a sense that although that wouldn't have been ideal is there probably were people at Pixar who probably weren't that unhappy about the prospect. Mm, mm. It's Pixar, I think, have maintained their quality over the last 20 years because they always approach things from the creative standpoint, which sounds like a very odd thing to say about people making films, but you'd be kind of surprised at how many things are kind of led by focus groups and, and kind of executives who don't really know what they're doing. Whereas Pixar have done something which has been emulated in a lot of places, which is, I think they call it the, the Pixar Brain Trust. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of seeing at the minute, there's the one at Lucasfilm is, is kind of uh, in the news quite a lot. Kathleen Kennedy is talking about the fact that they have, you know, a group of creatives who sit around and talk things through and, and challenge each other, which anyone who kind of knows anything about Star Wars has perhaps been the problem with those prequels that no one <laughs> challenged George Lucas on anything. Um, and it kind of cuts out a lot of the bullshit that goes with um, dealing with studios. And it's kind of stunning that it's taken until kind of like the mid-90s 
early 2000s for a creative studio to think, hmm, this might be the best way forward. Yeah, the the idea driving them as they want to be a filmmaker-driven studio instead of an executive one, where, so essentially, even though directors are all working on their own individual films, they will get together fairly often for sessions where they all just sit down and watch each other's work or talk about the script and give notes, and they're often... Mm described as very candid so there's no kind of pussyfooting around stuff that doesn't work and they just try and work together to make the best possible film and obviously that situation isn't foolproof because cars too but i think the the culture at uh, pixar i think the fact that they have never been based in hollywood they were based in uh, i think richmond california and then they moved to emeryville uh, in 2000 the fact that they are separate from that but are obviously still big players probably plays a big part in why that culture has been able to develop in such a way mm, i think the kind of the proof of the pudding is the good dinosaur as a film that was announced probably very nearly six or seven years ago and was uh, supposed to come out in 2012 or 13 and then was pushed back a year then pushed back another year and the director and the entire cast were replaced and that was all out of trying to kind of find the best possible way to fix the film in a story sense rather than saying it's not working, let's just get John Frankenheimer in to finish it. <laughs> yeah, and that's something they've done on multiple occasions as well. They did it with Ratatouille, where famously Jan Picava, who was uh, someone who had worked for Pixar for a while and had won an Oscar for his short Jerry's Game, was working on it and the film wasn't working as he was putting it together, so he was moved and Brad Bird took over it. I think Brave went through a, sing- a similar kind of difficult production where Brenda Chapman was the sole director and then uh, things weren't working so they brought other people in to help. And I think even maybe Toy Story 2 went through the same thing when they just had to go into a... Re- when they wrested control back from Disney, they had to basically scrap everything that had been done that had been done for it and redevelop from the beginning. So they're a, a studio who are not afraid to look at a thing that isn't working and say, how do we fix this? How do we make this better? And mm. I think their willingness to take big risks on that sort of thing, because it is, a, like we talked about this the other week, um, or last week, where it is a big risk to set a release date for a film and then say, you know what, it's not working. We need to do more. We need to try and fix this. That's that's something that could seem like weakness, but I think has been, in most cases, something of a strength for Pixar as a studio. Hmm. Mm, absolutely. What what's coming up for Pixar? Uh, I see the, you've got the uh, aforementioned uh, Finding Nemo sequel, which is called Finding Dory, which mm-hmm. implies that it's the same film again with a different fish. But uh, watching the trailer doesn't really feel like that. No, I mean that that trailer. I wasn't overwhelmed by that trailer. Pixar usually um, their 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 trailers tend not to be all that great, but that one felt a little bit. Uh, scatterbrained but you know so is dory as a character so i guess guess that feels appropriate it does look different in the idea that dory is going to go up and try and find her family and starts to experience memories so i'm i'm hopeful that it that it turns out pretty well finding nemo isn't one of my favorite pixar films but it is one that i find to be kind of very sweet and good-natured and thus i can easily see why it's one of their most successful because it does just have a lot of very nice things in it and hopefully Finding Dory will be the same. Uh, they have a Toy Story 4, which is heading down the the way. We've got Cars 3. Because, because, again, toys, lots of toys. They need to, to invent more 
annoying pickup truck characters or try and find uh, new modes of transport that they can anthropomorphize to diminished returns. Uh, L- have... Larry the cable guy as well. <laughs> I mean, it's... you may as well get Jim Davidson in to voice the UK version. <laughs> Fucking terrible. Uh, the way that Andy Peters voices the character <laughs> in Toy Story 2. Yeah, but that's in all the versions. It's oh, not it? just the UK version. He is yeah. He's there for posterity all around the world. Uh, unlike in Shrek, where is it like Larry King voices a barmaid in the American version and Jonathan Ross is in the Amer- in the English version? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Kate Thornton is in that. Which I mean, you know, we were saying earlier about DreamWorks putting in kind of cultural references that will be out of date. I mean, even Kate Thornton don't know who Kate Thornton is. It's crazy. <laughs> and then I think the the next original feature, or at least the only one that I can remember off the top of my head, is they have a film about the Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. which has been kind of on the docket for a long time. And uh, it'd be interesting to see how that turns out, because obviously we had the film Book of Life, which was also about the Day of the Dead, released last year, which didn't do particularly well. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that whatever Disney have planned for it, it, it turns out a little better. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, isn't, aren't they sequelizing The Incredibles? Yes. Okay, yeah, that's that's the other one that I forgot. Brad Bird has signed on and he's working on uh, a sequel for The Incredibles, which I... I, I wrote a blog post about this when it was announced. I have very mixed feelings about it because The Incredibles is a fantastic film and it is probably the most easily sequelizable of the Pixar uh, canon because obviously there's just lots of... You, all you need to do is just think of new villains for the Parr family to fight. Mm-hmm. But uh, that at the same time is kind of the reason why I always like the fact they didn't sequelize it is that it seemed to represent something about Pixar as a company that they had this ready, franchisable property and they didn't do anything with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it for uh, for Pixar this week. Let's uh, jump straight into some uh, some short reverse short recommends. Based on the fact that we're talking about Pixar this week, I decided to pick an, an animated film, one that is fantastic that not a lot of people have seen. I've chosen the film Secret of Kells, which is an Irish animation from 2009 about a kind of very inquisitive boy who, who lives in a monastery uh, in Ireland, and he's he has kind of adventures uh, when he kind of steps outside the walls of the of the kind of uh, the monastery and kind of meets a forest spirit, and there's Vikings in it, um, and it is just a very very beautiful film. Draws very heavily on Celtic mythology um, and loads of religious stuff that I'm I assume is real, um, and is stylistically so lovely, um, and it kind of has that kind of Miyazaki kind of otherworldly vibe which not many other kind of uh, English language things can kind of touch it, I think. Yeah, that's that's an amazing film. And I think that a, not a sequel, but a kind of a follow-up from the same creative team called Song of the Sea came out this year, which I've heard amazing things about, but not had a chance to watch. Is that the same guys? Uh, I believe it's the same director, yeah. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Because I've, I've heard similar good things about it, but I'll definitely check it out. If it's uh, The Secret of Kells goes. The Secret of Kells was nominated for what kind of best animated film that year. And everyone was like, uh, what's this? And then people <laughs> actually watched it. And it was it's, it's astonishing. It's on Netflix if uh, in all regions. So uh, please check that one out. I am going to recommend a film that I mentioned earlier on. Tangerine. I had a, a double bill this week where I watched the Tom Hooper film, The Danish Girl. Which, um, spoilers for our end of year episode is my least favourite film of 2015. I hated it. It was awful. It was this really, really terrible awards bait, middle-brow bullshit that tried, that told us a very interesting story about a transsexual 
woman and completely fucked it up and made it into this really kind of weird and alien and sterile and uh, a story that lacked all humanity. But Tangerine, directed by Sean Baker, is overbrimming with humanity and treats the its two transsexual uh, characters with tremendous warmth, whilst also depicting them as genuine and complicated and maybe slightly crazy people. And it is a story where one of the two characters named Cindy uh, is just recently been released from prison and she finds out that her pimp has been sleeping with another prostitute and she decides that she's going to get revenge on both the prostitute and the primp and that involves going around LA and just kind of uh, using whatever she can to try and get people to tell her where the hell her pimp played by uh, Ziggy Sabotka from season two of The Wire so that gives you a sense it gives you a sense of the kind of character that he's playing and it is I, I described it as the perfect meeting point between John Cassavetes and Crank mm. because it has this this kind of very raw uh, emotional edge to it and this sense of uh, a story that's clearly been very well planned because there's like parallel na- narratives going on. There's a, a, another story in there about an Armenian cab driver which eventually crosses over with the main storyline and it's clearly been very nicely planned out but it also has a very kind of improvisational feel to it. But also the camera work because it was all shot on an iPhone 5 um, although you wouldn't know from the look of it. Well, some early shots do kind of look a little bit but for the most part, it looks like as good as most digital cinematography. But the freedom of shooting on an iPhone 5 means that it has this very kind of visceral handheld quality to it and a great energy that is very... Reminding me a lot of the, the Crank films, but if uh, Jason Statham was replaced by a transsexual prostitute stalking around LA. Uh, mm. And it's and, and, and on top of all of that, it's really fucking funny. Uh, <laughs> and includes a very... Brief but very fun performance by Ian Edwards, the uh, stand-up comic who uh, I think if everyone highly recommend people look up his bit on shark attacks, which uh, you can find fairly easily on uh, YouTube. He's very funny in the film. Yeah, it's just it's just uh, fantastic and one of one of my favourite films of the year. Mm. And Ed will definitely put uh, the shark attack uh, bit in the show notes because uh, I could do with seeing that as well that's it for this week uh, thanks for listening everyone I hope you've enjoyed it as always you can uh, find us on the Twitters and the Facebooks and you can subscribe to us on iTunes on Stitcher Smart Radio and Player FM we're going to have a new website address next week I promise that's easier to say than srspodcast.podbean.com but between now and then go there find the links to all of that aforementioned stuff and yeah that's where we live we'll be back next week until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me 